Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hi, just a word before we start. Voting is open for the British Podcast Awards People's Vote. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, we'd be so grateful if you could cast a vote for us. Just go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and search for The New Statesman. Voting is open until the 5th of September. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of the podcast, and I'm joined in the studio by our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward. You've been reading through our questions and you've brought two to discuss in this episode, actually. So who's the first one from? It's from Will in Edinburgh. He's been looking at our State of the Nation poll tracker, which we often reference and people should definitely look at, uh, which is run by Ben Walker. So he asks, taking into account the latest polls, Ben's tracker projects a massive win at the next election for Labour with 414 seats, leaving the Tories with 155 and the Lib Dems with 27. Will says, presumably tactical voting will make this Lib Dem number of seats larger. What is the likelihood that the Lib Dems become the third largest party in Parliament once more, and if they do, how will that impact our politics? This is a good question, because if Ben were here, he would tell us that his model doesn't yet factor in tactical voting. So that's voters who otherwise would vote Labour in certain constituencies who will lend their votes to the Lib Dems to try and oust the Tories or get a a smaller Tory showing in Parliament. Um, And so he hasn't factored that into his model yet. So it means that actually the number of Lib Dem seats is perhaps underestimated in the model that he's got at the moment. And I think that's what our questioner is picking up on. Yeah, completely. And we saw that tactical voting was very prevalent in the by-elections last week. We saw the Lib Dems take Somerton and Froome very convincingly and the Labour vote collapsed because all those people went across to support yeah. the Lib Dems. They, they came fifth, didn't they? Completely yeah. collapsed. I think they, did they lose their deposit? They did, they, they did, they yeah. So deposit. clearly that message got through, don't bother voting Labour here. Very effective. Yeah. Similar thing happened in Selby, the Lib Dem vote collapsed and Labour overturned a massive Conservative majority. Yeah. So that will give both parties, I think, some hope that tactical voting will come into play. I think it always is more prevalent in by-elections because the focus on individual constituencies is much greater rather than the national conversation yeah. about who you want in government. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely there. Yeah, and we've seen it happen as well in Tiverton and Honiton, yeah. um, in Devon, and also in North Somerset as well. And these were actually seats where Labour was second place to the Conservatives and the Lib Dems 
were able to leapfrog both of those parties to win those by-elections. Mm. Um, and that, you know, again, is a result of encouraging voters to vote tactically, but also voters sort of intuiting. Voters are quite clever. They know what they're doing. Mm. Intuiting that that's what they ought to do if they want to get rid of the Tory candidate in that seat. But you're right. By-elections are very different, largely because the Lib Dems, you know, will have the resources to target one seat yeah. for a few weeks' time. I think in Somerton and Froome, the candidate, the Lib Dem candidate there had been chosen at least a year in advance. Yeah. So, you know, they've got the time and the energy and the resources to put into these seats. When it comes to a national election, it's really hard for them to decide where to split their energies, which means that it does put a sort of ceiling on how you can really use that tactical voting effect. Yeah, quite. And as we've discussed before, the Lib Dems have maintained their electoral operation since 2019. Most parties wind it down a little bit and then wait for the next election. The Lib Dems very presciently kept it going. Yeah. And they were ready for the by-elections. Ed Davies, one of his main promises when he stood the leadership was to expand the number of campaign directors around the country. Yeah. They've got more people on the ground. So they're seeing the fruits of that investment now, I think. Yeah. And, and another part of Will's question is, What's the likelihood of the Lib Dems becoming the largest party? I don't really like predicting these no, kind of things, but... I won't do it. No. Yeah, when you see the woe that the SNP are in in Scotland, yeah. you think perhaps, you know, there is a potential that there could be a switching of places. So it's not, you know, an unlikely outcome, but we're not going to predict that. Sorry. Um, but what? how would it impact our politics if the Lib Dems did have a stronger showing in the House of Commons, do you think? Yeah, this would be remarkable. Remember their collapse in 2015 to return to prominence would be a huge turnaround and it would point to the fact that they've got over those coalition years they've got over the resentment that people built up towards them over tuition fees and over being a party that instigated austerity alongside the conservatives which we always must remember and also in some places they really didn't like the message of rejoin the eu which was the campaign message that they took in 2019 yeah quite so if they did do that That would be in itself remarkable. But also, I think the most important thing would be that the SNP are no longer the third largest party. If you're the third largest party in Parliament, it comes with lots of privileges. It means, for instance, that you get two questions at Prime Minister's Questions after uh, the leader of the opposition. That's what Stephen Flynn currently does very well, I think, and without notes, which is very rare (laughs) in the House of Commons. So that gives you public prominence. It gives you an ability to get your message across to your parliamentarians. It's, It's Good for party you get your unity. questions in before people switch off PMQs, basically. Exactly, for all those people watching it. And also you get more media appearances, you're in the national debate, people take you more seriously. It just builds up a sense of momentum, a sense of importance. If the SP don't have that, given the problems they've had in the past year, it'd be a massive blow. They will lose one of their key uh, platforms. So they've got the Holyrood platform, they've also got the Westminster one. If they lose that, I think that would be a massive blow to their campaign to get Westminster to listen to their calls for a second referendum. Yes. And yeah, and it also means that it will affect how they can campaign for the Holyrood elections after the next general election, because they will just have, like you say, less prominence, less visibility in the House of Commons, which means that a lot of national journalists, you know, it's too, it's all too easy for a lot of national journalists to ignore those parties that sort of come down lower in the pecking order. So it will, it will be a really big deal for them. Yeah. And their message is always, we'll represent you in Westminster, we'll be Scotland's voice. Well, if they don't have a sufficient number of MPs, they won't be able to do that at all. Mm. And and how about having more Lib Dems in the House of Commons in general? I mean, would it have an impact? It's very difficult to answer this question because you don't know what kind of government's going to be in next time. But say that the national polls are correct and it's a Labour majority, how much of an impact would it be if they've got a bigger group of Lib Dem MPs that they have to contend with when trying to get votes through? Yeah, I think it 
depends on the size of that majority. Yeah. If it's very large, it won't concern them very much. Remember before 97, there was lots of talk between the Lib Dems and Labour. Yeah. Blair was reaching out to see whether they'd be interested in a coalition because they weren't confident they would get the majority that they did. So if that happens, if they don't get a strong majority, then yeah, Lib Dems will have a greater say in what the government does. I think it's interesting how shallow Lib Dem policy is at the moment. There's not that much there. It's much more focused on individual issues. They think they can drive a wedge between themselves and Conservatives and themselves and Labour. So you saw their mortgage uh, guarantee scheme, I think it was. That was specifically designed to help them in sort of blue wall areas in the South and target those Conservative seats. Okay, fine. They didn't really explain why they should be propping up mortgage holders over renters or they didn't really want to get into that debate. It was just a, it was a quite a um, functional policy. Functional for retail term, policy. It's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. But I'm not sure we yet know what the Lib Dem party stands for in, in relation to what the Labour do. It's all quite, I don't want to use the word shallow again, but it's, it's, all, it's superficial at the moment, which is fine. It happens to lots of parties and that's just because of where we are on the electoral cycle, but it just means that it's hard to predict what they'll be like. I completely, I completely agree with you. I was asking when I was down in Somerton and Froome, I was asking Ed Davey about their EU position because their yeah. position in 2019 was that they would campaign to rejoin the European Union. That is still the policy on their mm. website. That is still their policy. But he was prevaricating. He was saying, oh, you, you know, we live in the real world, so we accept that that's not quite likely to happen anytime soon and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, you do need a position on that, I think, because yeah. in many of their former West Country heartlands, which voted quite heavily for Brexit, I think they will want to know that, even though it's not the sort of big policy of the day. It did come up when I was speaking to voters there. And I do think it's the perfect symbol of what exactly what you were saying, mm. that their their policies aren't necessarily ironed out. They don't have to be at this stage. Yeah, and then just on the EU question, let's cast our minds ahead to beyond the next election. There's talk about the following election, let's call it 28, 2030, mm. whatever it is. The EU question has returned. Labour don't yet want to argue for rejoining the single market. Perhaps they do, perhaps they don't. But maybe there's a big opening there for the Lib Dems to come through and reclaim Mm. uh, the European mantle. That'll be interesting to see. After the break, Freddie will introduce the next question. Give us a clue on what that one's about, Freddie. It's about a politician who was in number 10 for a very short period of time. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, Freddie, what's your question? Okay, we have a question from Nikki who asks, Have Labour been more scarred by the short trust era than the Tories? as Starmer and Reeves seem to have taken from it, that all borrowing is a mortal sin, even if it is for investment that generates more money in the long run. My favourite question of the podcast season so far. Yeah, this is a great question. Um, More scarred, I would say, obviously, the Conservatives are more scarred. Mm -hmm. Every voter that you speak to 
remembers the disaster of Liz Truss's premiership and largely blames it for the rise in interest rates. So I think the Tories are more scarred, I would argue that. But it's very interesting the way that it has impacted the way Labour are sort of handling themselves as a government in waiting. This idea of what Liz Truss was doing, which was tax cuts but unfunded, seems to have spilt into Labour's view that they can't sort of borrow more money for their policies, i.e. borrow to invest. So there is a very big difference between the two. Andy Haldane, the former chief economist of the Bank of England, was explaining this to me in an interview recently where he was saying these two very different things. Borrowing to invest, you know, is something obviously that should repay in the long term and shouldn't be something that Labour or the Conservatives are afraid of doing. But they've taken the wrong lessons from that disastrous time. Yeah, exactly. I think Liz Truss is still haunting the Labour Party During the mini-budget, or in the aftermath of the mini-budget, Labour said, you can't trust the Conservatives on the economy. They saw a chance to become the party of fiscal responsibility. And I think the the backdrop of the context for this was the fact that they've had uh, Liam Burns' famous 2010 letter that he left in the Treasury, which I think said, there's no money left. There is no money. There is no money, that was it. And the Conservatives and the Coalition, the Lib Dems as well, have been trotting this out for the past eight or ten years, I mean, it still came up this year, yeah. to say that you can't trust the Labour Party with the economy because the implication was that they had crashed the financial sector in 2008. I think there were so many people in Labour who were excited, they couldn't resist to have their own thing to bash the Tories with, uh, that they went too far. And the key distinction, as you say, Anoush, they had to make and they failed to make, and we did make at the time, was yeah. that you can borrow to invest because that will lead to growth over time, you get a return on your investment. What the, the key problem with the Liz Truss agenda was that she wanted to borrow to bring about tax cuts and there was little evidence that, that would lead to massive increase in growth and therefore you wouldn't get your return. Yeah. Now we can see that Labour are so focused and conscious and anxious to become the party of fiscal responsibility that they are dumbing down uh, some of their rhetoric at least. We you know, as we discussed, the policy is still ambiguous a little bit, but their rhetoric at least... So say that, that as we always try and distinguish on the podcast in Morning Call and on our writing in general between the messaging and the policy itself. I, I wrote uh, last week that there might be a risk for Labour in maintaining the policy, perhaps. But if their messaging doesn't back up the policy now, they won't have created the ideological atmosphere or the acceptance or the consensus within the media, within uh, the commentary. Exactly. Commentariat, yeah. Then they're going to get into office say, oh, so sorry, no, now we do actually want to borrow to invest. Everyone's going to go, well, hang on a minute. You've just been attacking Liz Truss for two years. You're a hypocrite or were you lying at the time? Yeah, and more worryingly, the markets will be surprised by that. What they should have been doing ever since, well, ever since Liz Truss fell out of office and, you know, they've been trying to maintain this sheen of fiscal discipline is saying the specific things they wanted to borrow for so that that is priced in by the markets. They know Labour is going to do that. They know Labour expects to get the return on investment of X amount and they won't be spooked by it when Labour decides to put it in place if it gets into government. They haven't done that, which means that they get into this messy situation where Keir Starmer can't even agree to reverse the two-child benefit cap, Mm -hmm. for example. I think that's about 1.5 to 2 billion. That's something that if they, you know, if they had give themselves a little bit more room, they wouldn't be in that situation that is causing some internal division. I know that they got through the national policy forum sort of 
quite unscathed mm. by the left and the kind of noises off from from the unions. But still, it's not an ideal position to be in. Presumably, it's it's a policy that Keir Starmer would like to reverse. In fact, he has said so in the past that he would like to reverse it. So it does kind of, I think it chips away at Labour's soul a bit, the fact that they've put these yeah. straight jackets on their policies. Yeah, quite. And I wouldn't underestimate the leadership's ease with which they'd happily chip away at Labour's soul. They've been doing that for a long time, and I think uh, on purpose. But one of the the key debates that this is distilled down to is Labour's fiscal rules and what they mean. There is so much ambiguity over what their fiscal rules are. And I'm just going to quote from one of their briefing documents on their fiscal rules. They say that instead of the current five-year projection from the government, we project public finances over 10 years and provide estimates for an additional 10 years. Now, I've read that to mean that they want to extend the period to receive a return on investment. If it's only five years, then you're not going to have the time to get a return on your investment like with anything else. So that, yeah. that's I see that as them trying to extend the projection period for government finances. However, Keir Starmer has also come out and said that he wants to reduce fi- a debt within five years. The FT has reported the same. And there's also been mentioned that they want to reduce debt within a parliament. Which is within stricter, the next than, the, which is stricter, stricter than the government. Because the government is on a rolling five-year yeah. basis, so it's always five years ahead, five years ahead. If you say you want to reduce debt within a single parliament, then it goes from five years to four years to three years to two years to one yeah. year. Yeah, There is a lot of ambiguity and confusion over what they want to do, and maybe that's intentional, I think much of it is. But it is leading to this problem we were discussing before, that they are creating a straitjacket, they are creating confusion, they are creating an atmosphere which won't necessarily allow them to achieve what they want to achieve in office. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send one, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just leave a comment under the video. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Freddie Haywood. This weekend, we're running a brilliant audio long read. Tanya Gold's revealing article about the 1922 committee inside the Assassination Bureau. That's coming on Saturday morning. Remember to follow us on your podcast app so you don't miss it. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.